So this question of does autism betoken severe sort of intellectual or language impairment? In some countries, it does simply because there is not as much recognition or awareness or access to assessment. And so the only cases that get caught are the more severe ones. So it appears that autism is a very impairing situation, which as we know, in countries where there's perhaps a more nuanced understanding of the higher order aspects and just more access to medical professionals and training and so on, then you really see just how subtle it can be. Hello to all the amazing Heart to Healing listeners. I can't believe we've already come to the end of season three. I've absolutely loved all of your wonderful comments about the episodes. And just to know that it's been a real comfort for some of you going through your own struggles has felt incredibly rewarding. I feel like we've already got such a brilliant and inspiring community, and I really can't wait for that to expand every season. So summer has begun, and I know it's usually a time to rest, reset, and enjoy yourselves. But I'd love to share a few more bonus episodes with you that I've recorded, which are too good to wait until the next season. So welcome to the Summer Specials. On today's Summer Special, we have a returning guest, Dr. Katia Fredrickson. And if you haven't listened to her episode on ADHD and children, then I highly recommend you do so. Dr. Katia is a licensed clinical psychologist who specializes in pediatric neuropsychology. She evaluates clients ranging from preschool to university students with autism spectrum disorders, learning differences, ADHD, executive functioning difficulties, and emotional vulnerabilities. In this episode, we will be focusing on autism in children, the different ways it presents itself, and how it can be harnessed positively from a young age. Will you start off by telling us what autism is? Absolutely. So autism involves the conjunction of various social skills vulnerabilities, and this co-occurs with the tendency toward rigidity, which can manifest in different ways, and sensory issues, which can also manifest in different ways. So, you know, as you can gather from the language I'm using, which is quite imprecise, autism looks very different in different people. It can have varying levels of severity. But in order to qualify for diagnosis, the symptom picture, it has to have an effect on the person's capacity to successfully navigate their daily environments, school, work, home life, relationships, etc. So the social skills vulnerabilities we're looking at, they pertain to socio-emotional reciprocity, which is the back and forth of social interaction. We bat the tennis ball back and forth as we have a conversation, initiate and maintain interactions. Those are aspects of um, reciprocity, being reciprocal, right? Just back and forth. The nonverbal aspects of social communication, all social interactions are marked by nonverbal aspects as well as what we say aloud. So our eye contact, our tone of voice, our facial expression, our body language, our posture, our personal space, all of these are critical elements of social interaction. And the last social element we look at is essentially the person's capacity to manage relationships, to initiate and sustain friendships, to resolve conflict, to sort of understand that you behave differently with different people, like how you behave with your boss or your friend or your principal or your teacher. All of these are different sorts of ways of interacting and being uh, with other people. So the sorts of skills that help support successfully initiating and maintaining relationships. In regards to the rigidity element, we see oftentimes sort of a general rigidity as regards the person's perspective or way of being in the world. So sort of like all or nothing thinking, perfectionism being literal 
difficulty tolerating changes, maybe changes in routine or transitions, novelty, situations that don't go the way you're expecting or hoping them to go for them to go. You also see rigidity as pertains to a person's interests, so they can be really sort of intensely interested in certain areas, topics, like your kid who is playing a particular favorite video game, reading books about the video game, talking about the video, etc. that sort of um, level of intense focus or interests that are unusual for the person's age. So they may be interests that are very intense or interests that are just unexpected for someone's age. So, you know, like the five-year-old who's reading all the books they can about World War II kind of thing, just an unusual type interest. You may also see rigidity as pertains to a person's use of language, their behavior. You may see repetitive behaviors, certain phrases being used repeatedly. And last but not least, you look for um, sensory aspects. Some people will seek sensory input. So this might be the person who just always has to have their soft blankie that they stroke or the kid who loves to stroke mom's long, soft hair, sort of seeking that sensory input. Or you may have on the flip side, sensory sensitivity, where the person's very sensitive to certain smells or textures or tastes or sounds. Again, you'll see some combination of these things in order to meet criteria for diagnosis. So how is autism different from Asperger's? Because they're often lumped into a, a similar category. Asperger's disorder is no longer a formal diagnosis. It's been phased out of the diagnostic manuals that we use for a variety of reasons, um, one of which was diagnoses were being implied inconsistently. In the U.S., for example, in a certain state, in order to qualify for services at school, a child had to have a diagnosis of autism. So then children who might be more accurately categorized under the Asperger's diagnosis might be given a diagnosis of autism for the purpose of helping them get the services they need. So there's sort of artificial reasons that might influence diagnosis and sort of muddy the waters. So previously, we had Asperger's disorder, autism, and we had something called pervasive developmental delay, not otherwise specified. So that was something you might use with little kids who you saw some traits, and but you weren't sure yet, and so you wanted to just keep an eye on things. Those things have now all been collapsed under autism spectrum disorder. So some people still use the term Asperger's informally, and there's a rich community of people who identify as having Asperger's disorder. And so it certainly still has a place in terms of in the community, even though we no longer formally diagnose it. Do you know whether it's the same case in, in the UK? Is it a widespread? Yeah, I looked it up. I looked it up. So our diagnostic manual that we use in the US and the International Classification of Disorders, the ICD, I can't remember what it stands for, but there too, Asperger's has been dropped formally as a diagnosis. And also, I've heard people say that people with autism or autistic person person with autism, what's the correct language to use when referring to people with autism? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, as autistic people are becoming a more sort of powerful and recognized community, you're learning a lot more about what preferences are as opposed to just following the old school medical model of how you refer to people. So person with autism is thought of as person first language. So the idea is to emphasize the person's individuality outside of their condition. So it's the person with autism. So autism is secondary. And this makes sense for a lot of medical conditions, you know, so for example, person with diabetes versus diabetic, you know, the former emphasizes the person's personhood, the latter defines the person by the disorder. Whereas identity first language is where you say autistic person and what we're seeing in surveys in the US and in the UK is that autistic adults on average prefer identity first language. 
So it's rooted in the idea that autism isn't a disease or an illness like diabetes or something of that nature. It's part of the rich tapestry of neurodiversity, and it's an integral element of the person's identity. And so it's sort of a sign of empowerment and ownership to say autistic person as opposed to person with autism. So that's my understanding. Although, I mean, I think always when in doubt, it's just best to ask the individual in question because people will have their own preferences in terms of the language they gravitate to. Yeah, it is an interesting point because I had a conversation with someone and they said it can be very disempowering when you say I am anorexic, for example, or I am an alcoholic. It's I struggle with anorexia. I struggle with alcoholism. As you say, it's that do we delineate between the person and, and the disease or the illness or the condition or do we make it a part of their identity and in labeling them as you're autistic? Right. It's sort of enmeshed in their identity, but then maybe also it's helpful you say autistic person maybe that's a preferred linguistic well I think a lot of um and you know I'm I don't sort of presume to generalize but just based on what I've read and heard many autistic people are able to do very well in life and meet their goals and have happy contented professional and personal lives and so just this idea then that the autism is considered to be like a disease or a condition or an illness doesn't feel appropriate because it's essentially a part of just who they are as opposed to there being sort of a negative connotation the way there is with a disease or an illness. Like a diabetes is an undesirable thing to have because it makes your life more difficult and it's bad for you medically. But people may not see autism as an undesirable part of their identity, again, depending probably on how successful and, and content they are with their lives. What are the most common misconceptions about autism? Because I know it's a term that gets thrown around and I'm guilty of it too. I sometimes say, oh, you know, he seems maybe a bit autistic or, or she's, you know, her behavior seems to be leaning towards that. What are the misconceptions that surround it? There are a lot. So we'll just talk about some of the most important ones or we could be sitting here all day because I think there are a lot of myths and misconceptions. I mean, one is that the idea that autism necessarily means that a person has low social motivation. So that can be an aspect of that relationship management piece I was talking about earlier to do with the person's capacity to initiate and maintain relationships. Some, people, some autistic people do just simply have a lower social energy, lower social motivation. Their battery runs out faster. You know, we shouldn't assume that autistic people aren't eager. In fact, the people I meet are very eager to have friendships, other sorts of relationships with people. But the issue is that um, sometimes, you know, they lack the skills or the certain sort of aspects of their social skills get in the way. Right? It's not a lack of interest or desire. I mean, another one that I hear a lot is just this idea that autism implies a lack of empathy. But we know that many individuals with autism are highly empathic and caring. You know, they may struggle with what we refer to as cognitive empathy. So cognitive empathy refers to the ability to understand, to read, to predict another person's mental state and perspective. So autistic people may have difficulty with that element. But on the flip side, they may show outstanding affective empathy. So affective referring to emotional, the ability to share, respond to, care about another person's emotional experience. While they may have difficulty with that perspective taking and really understanding, predicting, intuiting a person's internal sort of thought process, that emotional aspect can look very different. There's the idea too, autism comes with severe intellectual or language disability. And that may be the case that, well, it is the case in some individuals, but most people, for example, in the U.S., most people diagnosed with autism do not have intellectual impairment. So it's just something to be aware. Again, it's called a spectrum for a reason. There's a really, really, really incredibly broad range of um, presentations. 
Another one that's come up is the idea uh, that vaccines cause autism, right? So that was a big hot button topic for a while. Um, at this point, we know that there's no reliable scientific evidence for this. In fact, it's the, I mean, not vaccinating children is what's risky because then you increase potentially life-threatening diseases. So the reason this came about, there was a well-known research paper that linked the measles, mumps, rubella, the MMR immunization with autism. But, you know, cluster analysis showed critical flaws with the study. The research was discredited and they've followed up and tried to replicate it. And no, there's been no evidence to support that link. So that's an important piece of information to people for people to have so that they don't leave off, you know, or delay important vaccinations for their children. And that also brings up the idea of, again, thinking about causality. You know, is there something environmental? So the rates of autism diagnosis have increased. For example, at a decade ago, in the U.S. at least, we were looking at 1 in 88 kids diagnosed with autism. Now we're looking at 1 in 44. So that's a significant increase. And, you know, what's responsible for that? Is there something in the environment? Is there what, what's going on, right? My understanding is, just from reading and research, is that is people are simply more aware. They know better what autism is. And more kids are falling under the autism umbrella as we become better able to see autism in, in bright kids who are doing well academically. And as we've dropped off the Asperger's and the PDD and OS diagnosis, those kids have been folded into autism as well. And so that makes it look uh, much more, you know, as, as though the diagnosis is occurring more frequently. And then the last piece I would think, I mean, there are lots more myths, but the last piece I would think about is the gender piece, just this idea of, oh, well, autism is a male thing. Girls don't get autism, which we know is also a myth that I think is dangerous in the sense of um, missing out on a diagnosis in girls. I think particularly important to highlight is that there is a spectrum and I think people can be mildly autistic and then people can be severely autistic and you can maybe get by without even undergoing an official diagnosis in life if you have very, very mild autism and just display a few of the symptoms. But obviously it's a very, very different ball game to living with extreme autism. Yeah, and there are different diagnostic, you don't have to necessarily uh designate these levels when you diagnose but there are different you can designate different levels sort of level one two three to show the level of severity in terms of the impact on the person yeah and i think another like pertinent point is that the miscommunication and sort of inability to interact socially i think again it's something that a lot of us fall victim of is when someone doesn't have that filter or the ability to see the gray between the black and the white their thinking is very extreme and they don't seem to be able to form social connections with people immediately. Again, the assumption is, oh, well, maybe they struggle with autism or maybe they have autism. Yeah, and it's possible. You just never know. You really just have to see the whole combination. So there's a certain number of diagnostic criteria you have to hit. You just have to tick a certain number of boxes, and those things need to co-occur either at this point in the person's development or over time. Yes, this is a diagnosis where I'm just very, very careful to cross the T's and dot the I's because there's so much overlap. Kids with ADHD can have social skills vulnerabilities. They can be impulsive. They can blurt out unfiltered comments, etc. So you really do have to see the full panoply of characteristics before you diagnose. I'm curious as to what the gender differences in autism are. How do they display in girls versus boys? Yeah, this is interesting and something we've learned more about in the past few decades. So boys are more likely to be diagnosed with autism. And this occurs at least in part because like many things in our diagnostic manuals, early on research was done on males, right? And so like we discussed during our ADHD talk, criteria initially based on how males present and females don't always present the same way. 
autistic girls and women may look different in some important ways. So there are some real sort of red flag type characteristics that a lot of people associate with autism that we may not see in girls and women. And so those are things like, for example, really obvious repetitive behaviors like spinning and, you know, the flapping that you hear about and these sort of noticeable repetitive behaviors that stick out as being um, somewhat unusual or unexpected. And the interests that are very unusual, like the three-year-old who's memorized the train schedule and knows all the number two buskets in at 1131 and, you know, that sort of thing. You know, you hear that saying and immediately autism sort of pops up in your mind. And so that's, um, but that unusual interest is more typical in boys than in girls. And so we, some of these red flags that many people are attuned to, you just don't see as much in girls. And so that it's a reason they can be missed. So what's interesting is that when you look at bright autistic girls, and so I'm talking um, girls who are, you know, at least average cognitive and language ability, when it comes to the areas of the brain, the process, social information, they function similar to typically developing boys, okay? So when it comes to how your brain analyzes social information, the superstars are the quote-unquote typically developing girls. And I say quote-unquote because I am not sure who's typically, I don't even know what that means anymore because everybody has something, right? But so this quote-unquote typically developing girls are at the top of the pyramid when it comes to how brains analyze social information. And then next up, we have bright autistic girls and typically developing boys. What that means is that a lot of bright autistic girls, they may cope well during elementary school um, when there is still a lot of running around in play, a lot of athletics, etc. But then they may hit a wall as the girl world, as I'm sure you remember Pandora gets pretty complex pretty early. And once that we hit those later elementary school years, and certainly by middle school, girl world has become a perilous place to be where there is a lot of social information that goes unsaid. That's when you may see girls starting to struggle a bit more. And also there, on average, girls, uh, bright autistic girls are better at masking and camouflaging sort of mimicking behaviors. So they may sort of fit in for periods of time with their peers but it can take a really high emotional toll. The anecdotes you hear, just it's it's a lot of concentration and effort and can cause a lot of stress and distress. And as a result, so you see girls, uh, bright autistic girls are often not diagnosed or they're diagnosed later or they're misdiagnosed or they're diagnosed with something that they actually do have, but it's not their primary diagnosis like ADHD, OCD, and eating disorder. And the emphasis is placed on that when in fact autism may be at the root of what's going on. Really interesting. And it seems to be a general theme, actually, that girls are better at masking and they do tend to have more covert displays of a lot of these mental health issues and often then get missed. And it sort of comes out much later on in life and it can even you know, be in someone's 40s. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we certainly in our office, I don't work with adults, but uh, my, my colleagues who do, we certainly have people coming in and having a first time diagnosis in adulthood. And sometimes it happens because their child has come in to see how the clinicians among us who work pediatric population, child has been diagnosed and autism runs in families. And as you're sitting talking to the parents about their child, one of the parents may be recognizing certain aspects of what you're talking about. And, oh, gosh, it was like that for me, too. And, you know, and it's sort of is thought provoking. And so it can lead them to seek out their own evaluation. This episode of Hurt to Healing is sponsored by our friends at The And Partnership. The AND Partnership is a global communications business working with clients like Toyota, Mars, Coca-Cola and NatWest, as well as charities like the Princess Trust and RNIB. They believe that by bringing diverse talent together in partnership, they can transform the way that great brands are built. 
They call it the power of and. On the Hurt to Healing podcast, we know that having honest conversations about mental health can help us to see different points of view and to better understand ourselves. Just like the AND Partnership's belief in the power of AND, we believe that by coming together to share our stories, we make ourselves and each other stronger. To find out more about the work the AND Partnership creates, visit theandpartnership.com. That's T-H-E-A-N-D partnership.com. And a massive thank you to the AND Partnership for supporting my mission and showing what we can achieve when we come together. So how do you diagnose autism? So in children and teens, which is my population, a lot of it takes place outside of the testing office. Okay, so we do a really thorough parent interview. We go over the child's development year by year sort of in terms of um, their social development, their interests, their strengths, their, you know, areas of concern, etc. Year by year, we want to hear all the details. We do interviews with other people who know the child well. So ideally, I'd also love to speak with a teacher or two. I'd love to speak with, is there a tutor? Is there a psychotherapist? Is there a psychiatrist? Is there, you know, is there like a swim coach? Just anybody who knows the child well, especially in a context where they're exposed to same-aged peers, right? And so that's the true measure of social success is how a child gets along with kids their own age, right? Because if you put a kid with younger children, the younger children are not as demanding. They look up to the older peer. They're just not as demanding. And same when you place a child with older peers, the older, oh, well, so-and-so is younger. And so we'll make concessions to help so-and-so fit in, et cetera. And adults, all the time we make concessions to children, you know, we sit and engage in these long conversations about Star Wars or whatever it is. And it might not be our inclination, but we're being a good parent or aunt or whatever, you know? And so we, we engage in these things and we don't expect it to be a true give and take, a true reciprocal interaction. So really, but with same age peers, those are the ones who don't cut you that slack. They expect you to act your age, quote unquote, and they, you know, they want it to be a reciprocal interaction. So that's really the measure of social success. So oftentimes parents, unless they are involved with the school or they, you know, the child's extracurricular activities or neighborhood interactions, parents don't necessarily see kids um, on a regular basis, especially as they get older with same age peers. So we really, we really want to hear from teachers and other people who see the children in those sorts of environments. So we do more sort of um, interview, and then we also collect standardized questionnaire data from parents, from teachers, et cetera, so that we can quantify, well, relative to other people in this child's age range, how do parents and teachers see them in terms of their social communication skills, their understanding of social cause and effect, their rigidity, et cetera, sort of all the elements we talked about earlier. And then, you know, obviously, we're going to meet with the child or teen, him or herself in our office, where... From the moment we greet them in the waiting room, you know, how do they respond when we greet them and make eye contact and smile? Do they make eye contact, smile back and return the greeting? How do they separate from the parent? Do they respond to casual small talk as we walk down the corridor? How do they manage coming into the testing office? Do they know which is their seat? Um, How quickly do they adapt to the structure of the testing? You know, if they kick us under the table, do they notice and apologize? (laughs) You know, just all the social niceties. If I drop a, oh, you'll never guess what I'm doing this weekend, does the child just sit there and stare at me or do they say, what? You know, even if they're not interested, you know what the expected response is, et cetera. So we're looking at them all the time. And then we do clinical interviews. And depending on the age and sort of level of awareness of the child, we can get some really good information from that. We have questionnaires for different ages and we have tests that we do in terms of looking at how the child does with 
perspective taking, social problem solving, inferencing, sort of looking at a picture of people in a certain situation and, you know, what's that person thinking? What do you see that tells you what they're thinking? That sort of thing. So we come at it from lots of different angles. And if a parent suspects that their child has autism, are there common co-occurring conditions that can accompany autism or does it tend to stand alone as a condition? Yeah, that's a great question. So very often um, you see something else as well. So for example, ADHD is very common. And in fact, in the previous iteration of our diagnostic manual, you, if you diagnosed autism, you could not also diagnose ADHD because it was understood that they essentially go hand in hand. They were considered to be that closely linked. That's been changed because I think there's recognition that the ADHD is important in and of itself and you can't just completely subsume it under the autism category. It needs its own recognition. But so ADHD is, is one to keep an eye out for anxiety, depression, those sorts of things. And there are also um, common medical comorbidities that it's um, important to be aware of. So there's a higher rate of epilepsy, some genetic conditions, sleep disorders, GI, gastrointestinal type issues. So all of those are things to keep an eye out for. And I'm guessing, and maybe this is you know my naivety, but I'm, I'm guessing that autism is more biological than environmental. I mean, it develops. It's something that's actually a neurological pattern right. in the brain that can be identified if you were to do an MRI or something. Well, so I, we're not that sophisticated yet in terms of identifying it that readily. But yes, I mean, it's considered to be a developmental disorder in the sense that it develops in childhood, though we may not always be aware of it. As I said, sometimes people don't get a first-time diagnosis until they're adult. But yes, it's something that's sort of in the hardwiring. Are there treatments or cures for autism at the moment? How, If you have a, a child under your care, what can you do with them to help them manage the autism? Or is it just a case of management and learning how to live a life alongside it? Yeah, I'd say the latter. So it's a lifelong way of being. And again, there's no sort of one size fits all, just as there's no one size fits all way of being with autism, there's no one size fits all treatment. So I think if you step back and look at the larger question of neurodiversity, which is this, you know, the idea that all brains are different, you know, if you look at things from that angle, you realize there's nothing inherently, quote unquote, wrong with having autism. So it's not something that one necessarily sets out to cure. And again, so there are people who, for people who are severely impacted and, you know, there's a cognitive language component that gets in the way, then that's, you know, it's a different picture. But for your um, average sort of bright autistic person, the main thing I think to look at is where the characteristics associated with the autism interfere with the person's capacity to meet their goals, to be productive, to be contented, you know, because essentially you're asking the autistic person to live in an autistic world that isn't necessarily well, is not at all designed to sort of make them feel comfortable and to give them the greatest chance for success and competence. So really, where does the person's autism and the non-autistic world, where are those butting up against each other in the most problematic ways? And how can we go in and sort of try to help with those things? So for example, if you have a child who is struggling to make friends because they're very rigid and they always want to play their own way, or it always has to be a Star Wars game, or it always, you know, whatever it is that's getting in the way, then there are some social skills curricula that can help kids learn to be more flexible and learn the skills involved in turn-taking and sort of um, compromise, right? We can help autistic people find, you know, sort of quote-unquote birds of a feather who share their interests and just people with whom they can form truly reciprocal, close relationships that don't involve masking or camouflaging. People with autism can learn how to read nonverbal social cues, right, to help them navigate, you know, so when my boss rolls their eyes or when my boss does X, Y, Z, it probably means that he or she is thinking, 
ABC, you know, and so just is sort of solving that puzzle of the of what the nonverbal cues mean. Learning strategies for being reciprocal in conversation, right? Like back and forth and speaking about a variety of topics. There are all sorts of things you can do in that regard, helping people um, sort of figure out when and where repetitive behaviors are sort of productive for them. So for example, if you have a kid who, you know, they feel calm and centered when they spin in circles, that's well and good at home, but it may not work in the middle of the classroom. And so are there other behaviors we can substitute to help that person capture that same feeling without engaging in a behavior where they that might lead to negative social feedback or get them in trouble in some way? Things like that. How to self-advocate, like how to speak up and say, hey, I'm really good at this. This is harder for me. I need help with this thing. And here's the kind of help that works for me, um, those sorts of things. And what kind of help is helpful? So what can schools do to make a child's life easier in mainstream education if they're not at a specialist school, which I'm assuming that some people with severe autism have to go to specialist schools. What can mainstream schools do to help? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So some students who need help with communication, self-regulation, academics, et cetera, uh, they may need to go to um, a school that specializes in working with autistic students. Within the public school system here in the US, and so here, I know you guys, public and private is opposite. So here, public, i.e. state-funded, very much depends on the school district. Different school districts uh, offer different things, but some schools offer programs within the public school system, either, again, that are specialist or where kids get additional supports around sort of executive functioning, which is the planning, the organizing, the initiating, the completing tasks, which can be harder for students with autism. You can provide um, accommodations and support related to sort of helping with the sensory pieces we discussed earlier. So if you have a child who's very sensitive to noise, school can be a very overwhelming place. I've had a couple of cases recently where kids transition to middle school, which in the U.S. is when you start to sit in one classroom with one teacher, you start to transition around different teachers, different classrooms for every subject, a lot of crowded, sort of chaotic, noisy time navigating between classes in the corridor can be very stressful change for an autistic student. And so what are ways to help with that? Sometimes they I've had kids who are allowed to leave class a minute or two early so that they can get a head start and get to their locker before the melee is occurring in the hallway. They're allowed to wear headphones um, as needed to just sort of block out some of the noise. You know, if there's a loud assembly or field trip or just something that they're stressed and anxious about, they could go to the library. They have the choice of going to the library or something instead of going to that location. I mean, the main thing is really to recognize the person's individual profile of strengths and and the things that are harder for them and then try to enhance the strengths and work on the things that are harder or sort of accommodate them. So as I was saying for the sensory piece, we're not fixing that sensory issue. We're just helping that person manage the environment. If we think about communication as being an area, you know, social communication is part of what autism means and that being harder. And so we don't want teachers who are relying a lot on sarcasm, nonverbal cues, sort of indirect language which nine out of 10 students in the class may grasp perfectly, but that autistic student may be that one out of 10 who did not get that that was a sarcastic comment and, oh, we're not actually all supposed to stand up and go to the front of class or whatever it is. And so that can result in misunderstandings and embarrassment. You know, So be explicit. Don't use figurative language. Don't use sarcasm. Be very clear and concrete. Watch for teasing and bullying. I mean, we've got a lot of data these days uh, showing how dreadful um, the impact is of bullying at school and really have to watch for those things, especially during the unstructured portions of the school day, you know, recess, lunchtime in the corridor when there isn't as much in the way of adult support. 
watch for those things and, and be aware and intervene swiftly as necessary. Kids with autism often will, well, they're more likely to have some difficulty navigating group work, partner work, figuring out what the roles are, who's doing what, compromising about ideas, so some additional guidance there. There are social skills supports that can be provided at school. You know, they'll call it a lunch bunch where the autistic student maybe chooses a few buddies or there are a few kids with similar vulnerabilities who maybe go and sit in the library and have lunch with the librarian and they have sort of a, they work on conversation and that sort of thing. So lots of things that can be done to accommodate and help and, and just sort of support development in those areas where, again, the autistic person <laughs> intersects with the non-autistic world in a way that is difficult. And yeah, you alluded to that sensory overload and, and you do sometimes see parents with children who have headphones on in, in public spaces. And is, is that due to just the noise being a real aggravation? Yeah, I think so. And and I have friends who use those with their um, kids who have sensory sensitivities, anxiety. It may not at all be a signifier of autism, but it's somebody who is more easily overwhelmed um, in a sort of a loud, chaotic environment. And it really helps to dull down some of that input. Do you ever medicate kids with autism? You wouldn't be medicating for autism per se, but you'd be, if you needed to, well, and I say you, I'm not a psychiatrist or a medical doctor, but I would recommend it if there are accompanying characteristics that are problematic. So say, for example, your autistic student also has ADHD and the attention is really getting in the way or the impulse control, well, let's try ADHD medication. Or if your autistic student is very stressed and anxious, we might want to try something to help with that so uh, you wouldn't it would be sort of medicating co-occurring issues and what are the long-term prospects for kids with autism yeah again we sort of go back to that no size no one size fits all uh for these guys you know as kids are progressing through the school system in the public school system here in the u.s if they have a an education plan in place by the time they are 14, um, I believe it's 14, the education plan needs to include a transition plan. So you need to start the school team and parents and treaters need to start thinking about what this child might be suited to. What are their interests? What are their strengths? What would be a good career path or sort of course of study that would help them that wouldn't draw too heavily on the areas that are more difficult for them? An autistic kid is... Uh, can go out and meet their goals. They can have a successful career, uh, relationships, family, etc. Um, it may just be that we need to be more sort of planful in terms of the path that they take to reach those goals. And then there are going to be a portion of the autistic population. There is a portion who will require, you know, more support skills related to getting and keeping a job, uh, managing finances and budget. Um, managing sort of their emotional well-being. It really, really, really varies depending on the person. But that's a big sort of topic that people are thinking about is, you know, as we are diagnosing autism more and more in kids, how do we help them make that launch into adulthood in a successful and productive manner? And as we've alluded to, there are a number of strengths associated with autism, their ability to hyperfocus. They can be real empaths and incredibly sensitive, although it might necessarily not necessarily come out in a conventionally acceptable way. What are some of the other strengths associated with autism? Yeah, so that hyper-focus element that you mentioned, I mean, that can lead to great things. People can really sort of drill down and learn a lot about areas that they're motivated by and interested in, and that can be parlayed into a career path, depending on what the interest is. 
oftentimes you'll see attention to detail, ability to take in and recall facts and um, developing a, an advanced knowledge base. You know, again, no, two people are the same, but these are things that I would expect to see in a large portion of autistic people is, you know, you'll often see a preference for um, visual reasoning, stronger visual reasoning, pattern recognition. That can be a real area of strength. And this real, you know, as we've been saying, high level of motivation to dive into uh, things that are of interest, things that are motivating. And then as you think interpersonally, I mean, in general, again, you'll often, something that people talk about is, you know, when I look at studies and reports from autistic adults is, is honesty and sort of being a straight shooter, being resilient, because a lot of times autistic people have dealt with a lot of trauma in their lives because of how they've been understood or misunderstood, as the case may be, by others. Um, a high degree of empathy and sort of a kinder perspective and a unique perspective, a quirky sort of fun sense of humor, out of the box thinking. These are all things that we often see as strengths in the autistic population. Going back to your earlier point as well about the diagnosis almost doubling amongst children, I can't help but think, yeah, that's just because we're gaining more of an awareness and an understanding of the spectrum and of all the nuances. And as it as we advance in that, the diagnosis is just going to increase. I think so. I mean, and part of what's interesting is, as you look at incidence rates around the world, so this question of does autism token severe sort of intellectual or language impairment. In some countries, it does simply because there is not as much recognition or awareness or access to assessment and reliable skilled diagnostic professionals. And so the only cases that get caught are the more severe ones. So it appears that autism is a very impairing situation, which as we know, in countries where there's perhaps a more nuanced understanding of the higher order aspects and just more access to medical professionals and training and so on, then you really see just how subtle it can be. That being said, I mean, you certainly wouldn't diagnose unless you see a significant impact, but something can be subtle and nonetheless have a major impact on someone's life, right? As again, when you take into account sort of masking and those sorts of things, there are a lot of things that we don't see that are going on under the surface. Well, I think it's been a really fascinating conversation about something that, again, is not discussed as much as it needs to be. And I really hope that listeners find it as helpful as I have, because I think the work that you're doing is is really incredible and is life-changing for so many people. So thank you for sharing all your really incredible knowledge. And also, I have to, of course, put my plug in. The second book in our children's book series is about discussing autism with children, because part of What's important when you work with kids and teens is, well, how do you share this information with your child in a way that is empowering and self-affirming and which is very important and about just sort of developing greater self-awareness. And so there are some really good ways to do that, that we're trying to share. And when's the book out, Gracia? Well, that will be, I think, sometime next year. That one's still uh, uh, on deck, so to speak. The ADHD book comes out first, so... We'll put all the details um, on the show notes and I really look forward to our further conversations. Thanks. It's been fun. I always enjoy, I love chatting about this stuff. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. 
So please spread the word. 